Welcome back to the Monday Morning Point Guard Podcast. On today's episode, going to be discussing the announcement of the All-Star Starters, as well as the new format to the Rising Stars game. Also going to be discussing some of my favorite memories from Kobe Bryant's career, as well as his impact on my life. And going to be finishing up with the Miami Heat, their ascension to the first seed in the East, uh, and kind of how they got there, as well as what they should do kind of moving forward with the direction of this team. If you do like the podcast, please consider following us as well as rating us. It would really help us out greatly. All right, so this week the All-Star starting lineup was announced. Out East, it's going to be Giannis, DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Durant, Joel Embiid, and Trey Young. Out West, we got LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, John Morant, Steph Curry, and Andrew Wiggins. Uh, The East just seems really accurate. It seems like they they nailed that. Maybe not Trey Young just based on the season that the Hawks are having, but they've really turned it around as of late. And there really isn't anyone that I'd have ahead of him in that spot. I think he's the one up for debate spot out East, but I don't even think it's a strong debate. I think having two Bulls guards would be excessive if you wanted to throw Levine in there. And then James Harden's had a pretty disappointing year by his standards. At the end of the day, this is just a popularity contest, and, and Trey is one of the most popular players in the league, so not surprising to see him there. Uh, out West, we have a couple of first-time All-Stars as starters, and Andrew Wiggins and John Morant. John Morant has had an amazing season uh, for the Grizzlies. They're definitely overachieving, and he's well-deserving. Andrew Wiggins is one that kind of raises your eyebrows as an All-Star starter. If you had told me a year ago that he would be an all-star starter at any point in his career. I would have told you you're crazy. Also, if you had told me when he was drafted, it was going to take eight years for him to get to an all-star game. I would have also told you you're crazy. So great. Just, just weird stuff to see Andrew Wiggins at this stage. Um, Does he deserve it? Probably not. Probably not. If we're just looking at this in a vacuum, But under this format, he might actually deserve it. I can't believe I'm saying that. Of course, I had to look into it, take a deep dive into this, and really come up with a nuanced perspective on Andrew Wiggins' case for being an all-star starter. Um, So let's kind of, first of all, look at what he actually is. Well, he's a pretty efficient 18 a game, you know, elite athlete. He's taking on tough assignments on defense. So, you know, a two-way efficient shooting slasher, that's that sounds like it could be an all-star, especially when you factor in the success that the Warriors are having this season. You know, as I mentioned, 18 a game, 48% overall on field goals and 40% on threes with only one and a half turnovers. So he's flirting with like a 50-40 club. I mean, the free throws aren't there, so he won't get to the 50-40-90, but still 50-40 is really impressive. And the Warriors are just a great story this season. It's nice to have them back kind of headlining the conference uh, after a couple of years, you know, really being a bottom feeder. Um, Now I hear what you're saying. Andrew Wiggins can't be a starter. There has to be somebody that we can put over him. Well, who would it be? You know, Devin Booker, Luka Doncic, Anthony Edwards are all considered guards under this current format. Um, So they couldn't be considered for that spot. And if you want to say that like the first seed should have a starter out, out West, you know, in the Suns, like there's a great case for that. But Devin Booker and CP3 were not getting in over Steph Curry and John Moran. It was just not happening. So those two can't even be considered for this wicked starting spot. Then you've got Paul George as a front court player. So he's hurt. He's likely lost some votes there. Anthony Davis has missed a ton of games, and the Lakers have just been a huge disappointment this year. So not surprising to 
see him up there. He actually has a lot more votes than even the, any of the guards that I mentioned, you know, the Curry, I mean, the, the Luca, um, CP3, Devin Booker, Anthony Edwards. So it's hard to really make a case against him, at least obviously by votes. So it's not even as if we took the top five, Wiggins would still be in there. Uh, Draymond would, for my money, I'd rather see him in there, but his numbers just aren't as impressive as Wiggins and he's missed some games. Then we start getting down the line and like Carmelo Anthony is on there. Can't imagine for the case for Carmelo Anthony coming off the bench on a, on a disappointing Lakers team versus Andrew Wiggins, a quality starter on a, you know, the second seed in the West that that's tough. I think Carl Anthony Towns might be the biggest snub that we've now that we've gone down the list, but he's like 1.6 million votes away. You know, Wiggins has 2.6 million votes. Carl Anthony Towns is in the 1 million range. Rudy Gobert only had like 500,000, DeAndre Ayton 400,000. I don't think any NBA fan worth their salt is saying that Andrew Wiggins is better than Carl Anthony Towns or Rudy Gobert. But again, this is a popularity contest. Not going to make the case for Gobert just in the interest of time because he's like 2 million votes away from Wiggins. And I think he has less good of a case this year than maybe Carl Anthony Towns, at least narratively. I'd still probably rather have Gobert uh, just for the defensive component, but Towns is Towns is solid. Um, you know, it's really hard to argue for Towns here down one and a half million votes from Wiggins, but in the 50 40 80 club as a center that's that's really nuts as a center and as much as i've crapped on him over the years for like his attitude and his defense and you know kind of the intangible aspect it seems like he's really turning it around that minnesota team has been really frisky this year it seems like they're taking on the personality of anthony edwards as opposed to towns and that kind of competitiveness and drive is is rubbing off on him uh, more so than when Jimmy Butler was there. It seems like there's less butting of heads and more kind of um, Anthony Edwards personality rubbing off on the rest of the team. So really, you know, blame the format here. You know, the, the last. Honestly, just blame the format here. I shouldn't have to argue the last all-star starter between Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond and Rudy Gobert. Uh, if there was a better format, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. And honestly, if there were no injuries, you know, Anthony Davis, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, they're probably in that last starter spot. So I kind of mentioned the format here. The format is just really stupid. I really don't understand what they're using to determine whether somebody's a guard or a front court player outside of like the really obvious ones. Like Chris Paul is obviously a backcourt guy, a guard, Kevin Durant, obviously a frontcourt player, you know, Carl Anthony Towns, obviously a frontcourt player. But just as an example of like, it just seems like they're arbitrarily choosing who goes into what. DeMar DeRozan and Levine, they're both considered guards by their, by the voting base or, or how they're determining the votes they're both considered guards but by the all-star games format standard they're saying that teams are starting two guards and three front court players so Levine and DeMar can't both be guards since Lonzo Ball is clearly the starting point guard there if you want to say that they well they both do more guard things than forward things that's fine uh, Levine is questionable I think I think he's probably would should still be more considered a guard Guard, But in the case of DeMar DeRozan, he's basically playing power forward for them. So I don't know how he's being considered a guard. Um, and what about LeBron? 
LeBron's the point guard for that team, you know, on the court, but he's considered a front court player. So I, I don't understand the difference they're making. Jimmy Butler, again, considered a front court player, but he's even more of a guard than DeMar DeRozan, given the lineups that the Heat run versus the Bulls. And for Jimmy's piece, whenever Kyle Lowry's out, he's the de facto point guard. So I don't know how he's not considered a point or a guard when DeMar is. And there's some other weird cases here, like Luca being considered a guard. You could easily consider him a front court player. By role, he's a guard, but with some of the lineups that are run, he could be easily be considered a front court player. And this is especially dumb because it affects who gets in as a starter. We're looking at it this year where we have Andrew Wiggins starting over guys like Devin Booker. Like that just shouldn't happen. But with the format, that's the way that it, it has to. I'll extend the league and olive branch here um, on, on the current format. It's a huge improvement on the old format where we had, you know, guards, forwards, and a center. But I, I'm not sure we ever really needed positions to be included in the all-star game. It just seems like whatever the fans want, and if they want to see five point guards roll out there or five centers, like, who cares? Like, it, this isn't that serious. This is a glorified pickup game. So whatever the fans want should go here. And, you know, for the argument that, like, well, we have to have some semblance of positions. This has to make some sense. Like, when the format was more regimented, you know, back in the mid-2000s where we had the two guards, two forwards, and a center as the starters, the West in 2005 had T-Mac, Kobe, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, and Yao Ming. Does that make sense as a team? Does that is that better or make more sense than what we have currently? We've gone to positionless basketball, so we need to update the format. And if, like I said, if fans want to see five point guards out there, who cares? So let's just get rid of all these positions and treat it like the pickup game that it is. Um, also, want to discuss the new Rising Stars game format because it, it sounds really interesting this year uh, I didn't even know they were looking at updating this and they kind of just sprung it on us it feels like last minute uh, so the Clorox Rising Stars game it, it's just a weird sponsor I don't know something about Clorox Rising Stars it just sounds like a weird name to me but but whatever it's not uh, it's unimportant uh, so there's going to be a pool of 28 players and we're going to split them up among four teams so everyone's going to get plenty of playing time with seven guys to a team. It's going to be 12 sophomores, 12 rookies and four of the G league ignite guys, kind of the more promising players there. Uh, the guys in the G league or the coaches are going to vote on who those four representatives are. And at first, when I read this, I was like 28 guys. Wow. The back end of that might look really rough, but really it's going to be the four ignite guys who should be fun to see, you know, it'd be a preview of what they could maybe bring to a team, you know, come draft time. And they're going to be spread out on the four teams. So each team is only going to have one. Then you've got the all-rookie team from last year with two extra guys and the future all-rookie team with two extra guys. You know, All-rookie first, all-rookie second. If you include both of those, that gets you to 10 already. So you're really only looking at two. And it really shouldn't be that bad. Like when you look at the all-rookie team last year, Cole Anthony, James Wiseman, and Tyrese Maxey were guys who didn't even make rising or i'm sorry an all rookie team last year so if you add obviously with wiseman kind of out i don't expect him to see i don't expect to see him there but adding cole anthony and tyrese maxey those are those are real nba players so it'll be good to see them and this year's rookie class looks to be one of the best and maybe most most deep classes we've had in a while so i expect it to be a really competitive game this is a game that i always enjoy and i think this new format is only going to increase my enjoyment of it 
So how are they going to do this with the rules and it only being on one night? Well, in honor of the 75th anniversary team, it's going to be a race to 75, quote unquote. So team A and B are going to play to 50, same with team C and D, then the winners play to 25. There's going to be some weird shooting challenge um, in between the two games from some iconic playoff spots and some memorable shot locations in terms of the playoffs. So that'll be cool. It sounds like that. I don't remember what the name of it was, but when they had the retired guy, uh, the what the player from the WNBA and the player from the NBA compete in that, that shooting challenge, that was always really fun, I thought. Um, and overall, this just sounds really fun. I always enjoy this game because young guys are typically playing their asses off. They've still got something to prove, unlike the all-star game. So, you know, a tournament coached by the all, you know, some all 75 anniversary team guys, um, it's going to be really exciting. I, I do hope if they don't at least televise the draft because these these all-time greats are going to be drafting these teams if they don't televise the draft we at least need to get a draft summary of what happened because i always find the drafts for these all-star events super interesting it can make for some like interesting rivalry stuff down the road you know if some guys feel slighted or you know he might have some beef with a with a former player that didn't take him um you know teammates can kind of go at it it's just it it could create for some interesting narratives I want to spend some time this week to pay my respects to my favorite basketball player of all time, Kobe Bryant. Continued thoughts and prayers to the Bryant family, as well as the Alto Belli family, Mauser, Chester, and Zobayan families. And anytime somebody as famous as Kobe Bryant passes away, it's important to remember and honor the other families that were involved in that tragedy. Uh, so where to even begin here? Um, I, I really don't want to get into the all-time rank stuff where he ranks against certain players all time I'm, I'm just going to keep it to memories of him and, and as well as his impact on my life um you know I, I really can't talk about Kobe uh without getting into how I got into basketball in the first place so I was at the age you know when I was born I pretty much missed the whole Bulls Jordan run uh, my earliest memory of professional basketball was watching the 98 finals and Jordan hitting that that game winner against Utah. But I was far too young to really appreciate and understand the, the moment there. Um, I was basically a toddler, so it, it really didn't resonate with me the way that it should have. Um, so the next great team in line was the Kobe Shaq Lakers. And we didn't have a professional basketball team where I grew up. So anytime basketball was on TV, it was likely going to be the Lakers. We didn't have the local broadcast of some team. There just wasn't a team close enough to us. Also, I don't really know that the local broadcasts were a thing back in the early 2000s. They might have been, but again, we didn't have them where I grew up. Uh, and as a kid, obviously, you're drawn more to the huge dunks and the flashy plays. You know, that's far more exciting than anything else basketball had to offer. So I was immediately drawn to that team. Uh, kids just don't appreciate kind of the, the beauty in like a, a team like the Spurs or something. And it's, it's only natural that they're going to be more drawn to the flashy plays and the big dunks. Um, so obviously uh, immediately drawn in by the domination and thunderous dunks of Shaq and the acrobatic and flashy plays of the young Froby and, and watching them basketball quickly became my favorite sport and led me to be a huge fan of the NBA. That's a fandom I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life. Um, I mentioned the style that he played with really drew me in at a young age, but as I get, began to grow older and my understanding of the game increased with it. it 
other things began to seem seem more important, and his game kind of evolved along with that. I really began to uh, began to appreciate his skill, and as he aged and continued to evolve, you know, into his mid and late twenties, he could still get up and dunk on people, but he no longer had to like the younger version of him. He developed the post game and the footwork and particularly with the footwork, that's something that we really haven't seen matched and has remained unparalleled to this day. And you could see the level of dedication he put into basketball every year. It seemed like he came back with a new wrinkle, something added to his game. Um, even beyond that, as, as he continued to age, you know, his body became, began to betray him. He still gutted it out, showing tremendous hard work in his rehab and, and grit, powering through the compounding injuries. Uh, here's just a few of my favorite moments here. Uh, obviously, we have the 2000 finals, the game four, where he completely took over when Shaq fouled out, you know, his duel with Iverson on the perimeter in the 2001 finals. I had a bit of a rough, rough patch with with Kobe after the Shaq breakup. But as I've gotten older, I've kind of become to uh, began to appreciate kind of his perspective on that Kobe's perspective with how hard he was working, it, it was just never going to work with a player like Shaq, somebody who's never been accused of, of being a hard worker paired with a lunatic hard worker like Kobe Bryant. That was just a pair that was never going to work. Uh, another memory, him tearing through the league in 2007, scoring 50 points in four straight games. He was just on, on a different level at that stage. 2008, coming into the redeem team, really taking on the leadership role and bringing gold back to the United States. That was really special. I really enjoyed that. 2009, watching the finals, watching him just pick apart Michael Pietras. Um, He was known as kind of like a a really great perimeter defender. That's in that name. Not too many will know. Um, He's going to be one that's lost to time, but he was known as a really good defender and really prided himself on that end. But Kobe just really picked him apart in that series. Uh, again, another Orlando memory, Matt Barnes shoving the ball in Kobe's face, acting like he was going to throw it at him. And Kobe didn't even blink. That was a really special memory. Uh, when Kobe dislocated his finger, didn't even make a face, didn't grimace at all, just walked straight over to the trainer. And while well, he popped it back into place and he wouldn't have thought anything was going on, just judging by his face. Uh, Kobe nailing two free throws after rupturing the Achilles, you know, tears in his eyes because he knew something was very wrong, but he still went up to the free throw line, buried those two free throws, walked off the court under his own power. Really special. Uh, Kobe's last season in the league, my dad took me to go see a game up in Milwaukee. I'd never seen him play live, so that was really special. And I remember at the time I was really worried that he wasn't going to play. I think it was on a back-to-back Um, on a road trip, but he vowed to play every road game that year or every last road game that year. And that was the last time they were in Milwaukee. So I I really respect him for honoring that and and getting the chance to see him. Obviously you've got the last, the last game, you know, the 60 point last game. It's still just insane. It was such a special memory, such a special moment. Uh, Nobody in the building could believe what they were, what they were witnessing and me watching on TV. I couldn't believe what I was witnessing either. And just all the game winners, it just seemed like any time there was a clutch shot to be made, Kobe was there and he was going to hit it. But even more than the highlights and the game winners, it's really the lessons that he taught us. He said such a profound impact on so many of our lives. And for me, no one has had a bigger impact on my life that I haven't ever met. Um, obviously the lessons of hard work and dedication to your craft, but beyond that, he never cheated us as fans. He always gave us his best effort. The perseverance and loyalty he showed in the later years was really special. The Lakers were terrible. 
during this down the stretch of his career and he could have easily pouted or demanded a trade thrown everyone on the under the bus retired early but he didn't you know he stuck around for 20 years and and really gutted it out those last three years even though his body had completely betrayed him at that point on that note he played through countless injuries you know torn ligaments in his wrist and just dislocated fingers oh bone spurs everything um, and he never complained through his rehab or, or while he was playing through those injuries. He, just judging from his face and his demeanor, you would have never known he was hurt. He was taking the same outlook into his life after basketball, and it's just a, such a shame we won't get to see what he was, he'll be able to accomplish in those years after he's done playing. I'm just very thankful for all the lessons you know, he's taught us and introducing me and, and pushing the sport I love so much forward. Had to get back to my roots here and make another segment on the Miami Heat. I've tried desperately not to turn this into just a Heat Strictly podcast. And I feel like at times I kind of swung too far the other way as far as the pendulum goes and not talking about them enough. Um, last night's triple overtime let down the side. I'm still recovering from that, but I think we can safely move Miami out of the dark horse contender category and, and straight into the legitimate contender category. Uh, a lot of the national media is not kind of giving us the credit that we're due. I think it's more to do with the players we have and the style we play. Uh, teams like New York and, and particularly the Lakers are always going to be more interesting because they have the big stars uh, and Jimmy Butler he doesn't have the flashy highlights the way, you know, big thunderous LeBron dunk does. So it's, it's only natural that they're going to talk about us less. Um, currently we have a really slim lead in the East and we might not be the runaway favorite to be the Eastern conference representation in the finals, but I don't think anyone should look at you funny. If you say, yeah, I, I'm picking the heat to win the East or even really the title for that matter. They're just a really solid team, really good team. I, and you know, currently sitting atop the, the leaderboard in the East is just really impressive, but that doesn't really tell the whole story. The East is much improved this year. And as we mentioned in our preview, there were very few teams out East that just completely punted on this year. We really only have three teams this season that are totally out of things. And in the past, you know, a sub 500 record could get you into the playoffs. And, and last year, a team six games below 500 in a shortened season, made the play-in game. This year, a 500 record may not even get you into the play-in. Compare that to things out west, where the Blazers are currently in the 10th spot, and they're seven games below 500. So just in general, East is much improved this year. It's not a cupcake conference anymore. And the Heat's position atop the standings is all the more impressive but again, this doesn't tell the full story. The Heat have been hit as hard as any team in the league, if not harder, with COVID and injuries. So much so that our top four players have only played 12 of a possible 50 games together. I think 51 now that the Toronto game has, has passed. So both Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, the Heat's two most important players, have missed significant time. Jimmy Butler's missed 18 games. Bam's missed 25, roughly half the season. So how is this even possible? Most teams fall apart if they're missing their second best player, let alone their best player or both. Well, as usual, the Heat have found these diamond in, diamond in the rough type players off the scrap heap who are legitimate NBA players at worst or quality starters on most NBA teams at best. 
it always just kills me how liberal we are with the draft picks though to kind of go along with that um we're, we're typically just trading away our draft picks like crazy and it drives me nuts because we're typically nailing those draft picks and like look at the guys we're able to get off the scrap heap imagine what we could do with like a a, a higher pick but at the same time, who cares about the draft picks? Look at the guys who are still able to get. Um, you know, and how Pat Riley and this front office continue to do this will just never cease to astonish me. And especially given the fact that a couple of these guys were in-house with other teams before they were let go and the heat picked them up. You know, and obviously spotting these guys is one thing, these diamonds in the rough, but the coaching staff also deserves a ton of credit for a developing them and B putting them in positions to succeed, you know, and, and I'm just going to kind of go down the line here of some of the players and, and kind of what they've done for the team this year. You know, Kyle Lowry shooting wise hasn't been his best season this year, but he's one of the last pass first point guards we have in the league, just a perfect floor general, always able to make the pass ahead on the break to move the ball up court quickly, get guys in their best position to succeed. It also just takes a ton of pressure off of Jimmy Butler and Bam to play make, particularly Jimmy. It seems like when Lowry's out there, he's just focused on scoring, which is more what he's geared towards anyway. He's a great playmaker, but I think in a vacuum, we would rather him just be a scorer, a bucket getter. You know, there's a reason we call him Jimmy G buckets. Um, Duncan Robinson, it's been really hit and miss for him this year. It's been more streaky than we would have liked. But even with him missing shots, the gravity he has unlocks so much for our offense due to the threat of his shooting. He doesn't have the on-ball threat like Curry does or even really the shooting threat to the degree that Curry does. But his gravity that he commands works very similarly to the Curry gravity. Also, the two-man game with he and Bam, just really special. Uh, one thing I've noticed from Duncan this year, his defense is much improved as well as his finishing around the basket. He has some really crafty finishes around the basket off of cuts. I feel like even last year, especially two years ago, it was really questionable whether he would be able to finish a tough layup. This year, it seems like he's finishing more of those than not. Jimmy Butler, you know, when he's been out there, it's all NBA as usual. One of the best two-way guys we have in the league. And his leadership piece cannot be understated. This team has taken on his personality, as teams do with their best player, uh, especially with the drive to win and just win at all costs mentality. This team has really adopted that. P.J. Tucker has probably been the one that I've been blown away by the most. With, with Jimmy and Bam out for a lot of the season, he has a really strong case for MVP of this team. It's hard to describe P.J. Tucker as a player because he's not a star. Role player just doesn't quite cut it for him. So let's make up a new term, call it super role player for now. If you have a better suggestion, let me know. Um, but he, he he just is this super role player. He's not a complete basketball player by any stretch. But the things that he does, he has just completely mastered. And for the Bucks piece, like he could clearly do a lot more than just stand in the corner like they were having him doing. Um, so it's really an indictment on Mike Budenholzer for not seeing that because I think he could have really helped them out last year. Obviously, they won the title, so it's hard to complain, but they did let him walk out the door. And now they're going to have to deal with him come playoff time. So he's just a really smart passer. He's good at finishing around the rim with the, the two-footed floater. 
obviously the corner three. He's actually leading the league in three-point percentage this year, as crazy as that sounds. And I don't think that means he's an elite shooter by any stretch. I think it's more a compliment to his shot selection. He just knows what is a good look for him, and he knows when to take the shot. Uh, he's the ultimate little things guy. You know, he boxes out so teammates can get rebounds. He sets brick wall screens. He makes extra passes and and plays incredible on-ball and team defense. These are things that don't show up in the box score, but it's things that really impact winning. I mentioned in the preview uh, for the Heat we did in the preseason that we needed to replace the Crowder stretch four who can hold up on bigs and help us on the glass. He has done that and then some. I mean, he, he is a, a much, much improved on that spot from last year with Ariza and I would say a, a real improvement on Crowder, even in the bubble season. Bam, still one of the most versatile defenders in the league, capable of destroying opponents' offensive game plans single-handedly. You know, not able is he able to switch onto guards and, and, and hold up as a center, but he's able to lock down those guards when he hits that switch. And just the versatility we can use with him matching up on other players as like a primary defensive player. One game we'll have him guarding Embiid. Um, he might be switched onto a guard like Dame Lillard and make his life hell. And then the next game we put him as the primary defender on LeBron. Offensively, the shooting touch is coming along and, and the fan base as well as the coaches and his teammates. We all want him to be more aggressive, but he I think he has trouble understanding what we mean by that. Not us as fans, but mainly the coaching staff and his teammates. Everybody wants him to be more aggressive. It doesn't always mean fire away from mid-range, uh, but take slower big guys off the dribble or bully the little guy when you get a, a switch in the paint. He's a good free throw shooter. I'd love to see him take it to the basket and get to the line a little bit more. Tyler Hero's impact on this team could not be understated. If you want to hear more about him, check out the Tyler Hero video I did a couple months ago on the pod. Uh, but just to summarize here, he's got to be in line for most improved player. I think that's a war that's probably going to Miles Bridges based on the season he's having. But he's got to be the front runner for sixth man of the year. He's just a complete offensive player and an improved and kind of underrated defender he's really frisky on that end everybody sees him as just a complete liability but there's a little bit more to it than that I don't think he's a plus defender but he's he's not a huge negative out there either but as far as him being a complete offensive player there's no shot move skill set offensively that he doesn't have at this stage even as a rookie he pretty much was a complete offensive player it was all about just finding consistency and polishing the game a little bit further and that's what he's going to kind of continue to need to do moving forward here. Uh, Caleb Martin, just an, a, one, one of the guys I mentioned, just completely off the scrap heap. He's a two-way contract guy. And how Charlotte let him go is beyond me, especially since they have his twin brother. He's a great athlete, maybe not quite to the elite level. Like he, I don't think he's in the top 1% or top 10% in the NBA, um, but he's, certainly got an advantage on most matchups he has athletically he is an elite defender though and he's really good at attacking the basket the shooting is coming along he's been surprisingly efficient there but really it's just his energy and his defense that he provides off the bench it's nice to take some defensive pressure off of jimmy butler so he can focus on offense caleb martin is able to take those tough guard tough wing matchups and and be the primary defender for those players he you know he put Trey Young in the torture chamber, some of those Atlanta games. 
Max Struess, a guy I talked about before the season, as a guy to look out for. He's just an elite shooter. He's got to be one of the best in the league for sure. Would love to see him at the three-point contest. And when he gets hot, he is nuclear hot. Um, it's just a super good ball player. You know, he could take it to the basket with some tough finishes. Uh, he knows when to drive in. Defensively, he's he's tough on that end. He's 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 frisky. Um, he's not really a plus defender. I wouldn't say, I don't think he's giving you an advantage on that end, but I don't think he's hurting the team at all out there defensively, just a really good understanding of the game and to label him as just a shooter is a huge disservice to him. Gabe Vincent, a guy who admittedly I was wrong about last season. I was pretty unimpressed and unconvinced of him as a full-time NBA player. He's just a really good scorer. He's shown some off-the-dribble stuff. He's a really capable shooter. And defensively, he's just a pest to deal with. Him and Martin together just makes life hell for the opposing guards. The, the pressure that they can put on is just really great. Uh, the mechanic, Dwayne Dedman, just as solid as ever as a vet. It isn't flashy, but he just knows where to be. He makes very little mistakes. He plays great positional defense. He knows how to be the role man on a pick and roll. He plays his ass off. He can really only give you these five-minute spurts, but you never really have to worry about him hurting you on either end of the court. Uh, Omer, you're seven. Another guy I talked about in the preseason uh, podcast for the East. He's just a raw big. He's got a really nice touch around the basket, and he has great hands, really special rebounder. He seems to catch everything. The hands help him out on the rebounding. Both defensively and offensively, he's still kind of learning where to be and when to be there. But I've seen some real flashes of a great backup big guy or a quality starter here. I think there's something there. I haven't even mentioned Victor Oladipo, who's a former all-star that hasn't suited up for us this season, or Markeith Morris, who's a really tough, gritty stretch four. Um, He's missed most of the year after the uh, Nikola Jokic incident. And the OG, Udonis Haslam, whose leadership can't be understated. Uh, Despite all my praise for the players on this list and kind of going through the line here and really, you know, singing their praises, this isn't really what I would call a top-end talented team. This isn't a team that can coast through games on their natural gifts alone. It's just a bunch of undrafted, overlooked players who have a massive chip on their shoulder. I'm going to kind of go through Each player here, again, Duncan Robinson was undrafted. His story has been told ad nauseum, spent some time in Division III basketball during college. P.J. Tucker was a second-round pick. He was out of the league after his first year and spent five years overseas before finding his way back. Dwayne Dedman, undrafted. Gabe Vincent, undrafted and was a two-way guy. Caleb Martin, undrafted. Uh, He was with Charlotte last year. He's currently on a two-way deal. Max Struess, another former two-way guy. Guess what? Undrafted. Omer Yurtsevin, undrafted. Even the guys who were first-round picks weren't high draft selections, and their stories are crazy, too. Jimmy Butler was the last pick of the first round. He was a guy who was homeless at 13 years old and faxed in his letter of intent to Marquette from a McDonald's while playing at a junior college school. Kyle Lowry was the 24th pick, and he bounced around the league. It looked like he might have been on his way out before he finally landed on his feet in Toronto. Bam Adebayo, one of their highest draft picks, 14th overall, uh, grew up in a trailer. Tyler Hero, 13th pick, a guy that was probably labeled his whole life as just a shooter, but we've seen that he's much more than that. 
the term heat culture has become a bit of a meme in the NBA community, but it's absolutely a real thing. And I'm not sure that there's a team in heat history that has lived up to that term more than this year's group. Ironically, the teams that have won titles, I think were poor representations of the heat culture. Um, you know, the, the hard work and the no nonsense that, the, that this culture is about. The 06 team was headlined by sure Mr. Wade County himself, Dwayne Wade. And I'm sure, you know, they had so sure, you know, he's the embodiment of heat culture, but Wade was still really young and for that 06 run and Alonzo Mourning was nothing more than a role player at that stage in his career. He had goofy Shaq who was never accused of working too hard in his career. Antoine Walker, a player that was considered selfish, I think kind of leading into that Jason Williams, a flashy point guard whose mixtapes were more impressive than his actual game. The bench was rounded out with heat guys, but, but still like having a starting lineup with Shaq, Antoine Walker, Jason Williams, those just aren't, quote-unquote heat guys in more traditional settings the big three heat you know teams were were very much underachievers for what they were and kind of what we expected of them they didn't play great team ball either it was more iso heavy they could be whiny at times i wouldn't consider either team i just mentioned to be tough and gritty by any stretch at least by compared to today's team standards so th- this year's group has a real chance to be the best representation of, quote, heat culture as a title team, but they do have some very tough choices ahead of them regarding playing time for this season and beyond. So what should they do? You know, this year they have a chance to, you know, make some trades, cash in some of this depth and try and upgrade the roster at certain spots. I think this year, they just need to stay the course. The chemistry is great, so there's no need to rock the boat. For some really wild trade rumors and trades pitched by this fan base, but I'm taking if the, it ain't broke, don't fix it approach here. Uh, we really have to see what this group can do. You know, as I mentioned, only 12 games between our top four players, and with a former All Star in Oladipo, hopefully returning in February. I don't think we need to shake things up too much. Let's work Oladipo back in and just see what we have here with this roster as a whole. The extra depth is not going to hurt us with an older team and and COVID still a thing. It really helps us to weather some of these lineup changes that can be thrust on us all of a sudden that we can't prepare for in the off season. However, I think what happened to the Hawks this year could easily happen to us. The disease of more, as Pat Riley calls it, maybe even to a worse degree for us than the Hawks, because the guys we have are on minimum deals. So they're they're going to be wanting expanded roles so that they can prove and demand uh, they're worth bigger salaries down the road, especially if we win the title or come close. Everybody's going to want more, more touches, more money, more playing time. That will be the time to cash in some of the depth for upgrades on the roster. Sadly, I think Duncan Robinson is going to be the casualty of that. He's the most likely candidate to get moved just based on his salary alone. He's really the most movable salary that we have. I'm not opposed to trading him. Um, I've been a Duncan Robinson supporter throughout the season when everybody was calling for his head in the fan base uh, when he was really struggling early in the year. Uh, but that was mainly just because he wasn't playing well. I didn't want to sell on him low, but just given the fact that his salary is the most movable, I want to get too attached to him being there. 
Uh, Riley has shown he's not a guy that's content to just run it back. Look at the difference between the 05 team that if Wade and Shaq don't get hurt that year, that's likely a finals team with uh, Damon Jones and Keon Dooling and Eddie Jones, that group. They completely transformed that roster heading into the 2006 season or even beyond the 2006 title team. That team was blown up really quickly. I know there were some retirements, but still they moved on from that group really fast. The example we have of Pat Riley running it back is kind of a weird example just because of the COVID thing. So in 2020, we obviously made it to the championship. And in 21, we just kind of ran it back. But Riley knew that there was going to be no training camp that year. So there's no time to get guys acclimated to new teammates and a new system. And most teams that year just kind of ran it back regardless of their situation, just because without any way to work guys in and develop that chemistry, it just wasn't going to make sense to make drastic changes to a team. Let's just say that they listen to me this year and keep the core group together here. Don't make any drastic changes. Um, What should they do? You know, I know Heat fans are going to want to see X player get big minutes, but we have to be really understanding going forward that there's only so much of that going around. Guys like Jimmy, Bam, Hero, and Lowry are going to play big minutes. They just are. There's less minutes for everyone else. I think the closing lineup's got to be P.J. Tucker, Jimmy, Bam, Kyle Lowry, Tyler Hero, most nights. So those five are already getting big minutes. In a playoff rotation, you're really only running eight to nine guys. So who should the other three to four guys be that are in this rotation? I think there needs to be one of either Duncan Robinson or Max Struess, if not both. The luxury of them, and it's kind of a blessing in disguise with Duncan this year not playing as well, we can usually see pretty early on who if Duncan is going to be hot. So if he misses a couple shots early, we know he doesn't have it that night, and we can switch it up and go to Struess. So just they just need to go with – we could, we'll consider this one player and just whichever one of them is hot. If they're both going, you know, if they're both on fire, then obviously that changes. But I think they still need to stick with starting Duncan Robinson. The, the ceiling, at least, of what he can bring to the team offensively with his shooting is, is higher than Struess's ceiling on shooting. Um, so e- either way, I think one of them should be out there, but Duncan Robinson should get priority or one of them should be in the rotation rather. Um, like I said, let's just count both of them as one player. Um, you're likely not playing both together in a playoff series, just with their defensive issues. So we'll just count them as one player. So uh, now we have two to three slots left for some combination of um, Oladipo, Caleb Martin, Gabe Vincent, Dwayne Dedman, Markeith Morris, and your seven. I'm just going to go ahead and remove Morris right away. He's just not as good as any of the other players I just mentioned. It uh, doesn't mean he's bad. It, he's just not as good and as impactful as we've seen those other guys be. Uh, most of the times you're going to run a backup big man. So let's shelve the Yurt 7 versus Deadman thing for later. I have a lot to say about that. Um, I think you're probably going to want to go with Oladipo and use Martin sparingly, at all, if at all, in the playoffs. Martin and Vincent's best selling points are their pesky defense. And depending on what version of Oladipo we get back, this is obviously subject to change, but if it's something resembling the pre-injury version in, in Indianapolis, even if it's not quite there, he's a monster on defense, probably better than Gabe Vincent and probably better than Caleb Martin on that end. 
And the ceiling for what he can be offensively is much greater than those two. Now where Martin and Vincent could slip into the rotation is if Oladipo is just a shell of himself, obviously, or if we're playing a team that has really great shooters on it that need to be chased around. I'm thinking of Joe Harris, if he ever comes back from injury and gets it back together, a guy like that, you could throw Gabe Vincent on Caleb Martin and they could just chase those shooters to save Oladipo, Jimmy Butler, those guys for offense. Also teams like Chicago and Brooklyn, they don't really have a center that can kill you inside. Obviously the Bulls have Vucevic, you can do that, but he's the only big on that roster that you're really at all, or just that you're really afraid of. Tony Bradley isn't going to hurt you out there and he doesn't really play that much. It seems like Vucevic is kind of their only center and then they're just using wings to kind of cobble together the, the rebounding piece of it. So for those series, you could just play PJ at the five when Vooch isn't in the game for the Bulls series and, and Bam when he is. And then Brooklyn just doesn't have a center that can hurt you. So you can live with PJ Tucker at the five. I would rather have Caleb Martin or Gabe Vincent out there for a series like that. than some slow lumbering big who's just going to get picked on, on the defensive end. So th- that, that, that would be a space that you could you insert Caleb Martin, Gabe Vincent into a playoff series rotation. So as I mentioned, the reason I saved the backup big piece for last is there's a very devoted Omer Yurt 7 contingent in the fan base, and I wanted to take my time making my points for this. Some have suggested that Yurt 7 should start alongside BAM, but that's a really bad idea, and I'm going to kind of lay out the reasons why. First and most obviously is the spacing. It's the name of the game in today's league. And neither Bam nor Yurt are good enough shooters to make that work. So there's two teams that I'm really thinking of that run two big lineups that are near the top of their conferences or have, you know, in the case of Milwaukee, they're not near the top, but they won the title last year running a two big lineup. But there's some key differences here. With the Bucks, Brooke Lopez might be their best pure knockdown shooter on the team, or at least he has a case for it. So he's one of the bigs, and he shoots the three like crazy. The Grizzlies are the same case. They've got Steven Adams and Jaron Jackson Jr., who's a really effective three-point shooter. So in both cases, when you're running a two-big lineup, one of them is a shooter. Also, neither of those teams have a non-shooter to the degree of Jimmy Butler. So if the Heat wanted to do this, they'd basically be running a three-man lineup, or I'm sorry, a, a five-man lineup with three non-shooters. It's just that that just wouldn't work. I've also heard the argument that Yurt 7 and Bam could shoot the mid-range. The spacing would be fine. That's just not the case. There's several problems with that. There's elite athletes in the association, so rarely are you even getting a wide-open three off of drive-and-kick action. And the difference between getting a shot off or not is like mere fractions of a second. So giving defenders less space to cover means they're going to be able to clog the paint more on driving lanes and help on defense a little bit more than if you expand them out to the three-point line. So that means no easy layups and a lot less free throws if you want to run your floor spacing through some mid-range shooter. Also, the quote-unquote can-shoot mid-range shots might be a bit of a stretch. Both of these guys are really efficient, inefficient, I'm sorry, inefficient for mid-range. So building an offense around two players taking shots they are not very good at 
and building it around a shot that is the least efficient shot in basketball is just not a recipe for success. Defensively, this also doesn't make a lot of sense. Yurt just isn't quite there defensively. He can really be a negative on that end at times, just not knowing where to be. And that's really the biggest thing with him. He just doesn't know where to be. He has potential to be a good defender on that end, but he just isn't there yet. One of Miami's biggest weapons defensively is their switchability. So if we put your seven out there, it just completely negates that. He's going to be the guy getting picked on and pick and rolls. And, and that would just be the end of it. They would never use, they would never pull Bam out and do a pick and roll. And, and that's what makes Bam so special defensively. He's, he could still be the anchor even with Yurt 7 out there, but teams would just be running Yurt, like I mentioned, in the pick and rolls instead of Bam. Bam's ability to guard one through five and lock down the opposing team's guards would just be totally taken away with them playing side-by-side with Yurt 7. It would turn into Bam being nothing more than a help side defender, and that just limits what he can do so much. So now that I've kind of moved us away from going back to the 1990s and running this two-big lineup – Let's go to Yurtsevin versus Dwayne Dedman, who should be playing. Well, long-term, it's obviously clear that Yurtsevin is the guy moving forward. But this season, it looks like the coaching staff is going with Dedman, and I think that's the right choice. Well, the promise of Yurtsevin is really enticing. This is a team that can win the title this year. Dedman is just too solid. There's nothing flashy. He's not going to put up big numbers, but he's going to make less mistakes and come playoff time from a backup center being asked to play maybe 15 minutes a night. That's really all you need in limited action in a playoff series. The risk reward just isn't there for your seven. The the ceiling is higher, but the floor is lower. And with the limited opportunities they're going to get, it, it just doesn't make sense to go with the high risk guy. When you go to your bench in a playoff series, you're just really looking to tread water and buy time for your starter to get rest, and Deadman will be better at that than Yurtsevin. Ultimately, we as a fan base can always agree to disagree, and this overabundance of depth issue is a good problem to have. It's a first-world problem, and especially in today's league with COVID, depth is going to be key. At the end of the day, we should be really proud and excited for this team. This year's title run going forward, the depth we have in the slew of young guys has laid the groundwork for a really bright future as the vets age out and begin to take on more limited roles. And obviously this year, we can look forward to a deep run into the playoffs and maybe even a championship.